read through Psalm 52 through 55 today. And don't worry. I don't care if you worry. <laughs> I do care about you. But you shouldn't worry. Um, the title of our message, because these are uh, four Psalms that, uh, that talk about David's uh, struggle with people who came against him. And many of those at times were friends. We can do that on this one is with friends like these who needs enemy God through attacks on David. Now last week, as Bill led us incredibly through Psalm 51, yeah, I was, that's about dealing with your own sin. But this week, it's when others sin against. So in the first Psalm, Psalm 52, I just got to turn my page. You know, oh, there, never mind. And that's another thing I'm able to do wonderfully. So, you still with me? All right, don't worry about it. I didn't get hurt. It says, to the chief musician, a contemplation of David, when Doeg the Edomite went and told Saul and said to him, David has gone to the house of Ahimelech. I will read the psalm, and then I'll explain it to you. Why do you boast in evil, O mighty man? The goodness of God endures continually. Your tongue devises destruction like a sharp razor working deceitfully. You love evil more than good, lying rather than speaking righteousness. Selah. You love all devouring words, you deceitful tongue. God shall likewise destroy you forever. He shall take you away and pluck you out of your dwelling place and uproot you from the land of the living, Selah. The righteous also shall see it in fear and shall laugh at him, saying, Here is the man who did not make God his strength, but trusted in the abundance of his riches and strengthened himself in his wickedness. But I am like a green olive tree in the house of God. I trust in the mercy of God forever and ever. I will praise you forever because you have done it. And in the presence of your saints, I will wait on your name, for it is good. Doeg the Edomite is the man who saw David when he first ran from Saul after David and Jonathan in 1 Samuel. This takes us through chapter 21 and 22, but earlier, David flees from Saul because Saul is determined to kill him. And Jonathan is at David's hand, uh, loves him, and sends him away. And as he goes, the first place he stops is at Nob, where the priests are there, and Goliath's sword is there. And David tells the priest, I'm on the king's business. Do you have a sword? Only Goliath's sword. It was kind of enshrined there. And he takes Goliath's sword, how, you know, appropriate, the one that he took from Goliath. And he also, he and his men ate the, the old showbread that had been in the tabernacle where it was there, which was uh, not really lawful, but Jesus later talks about this, remember? And Jesus says, David ate the showbread, and it was A-OK. Jesus proclaimed it to be OK. Well, Doag the Edomite, Edom, made peace with his brother Jacob. I believe the message of I got ripped off passed down to his kids to the point where they all hated Israel and would do anything they could against them. How did this guy, Doeg the Edomite, get to be one of Saul's main guys? I don't know. 
He just did. And when Saul went and found out that as he was chasing David, that David had been with these priests, and they had no idea that Saul was chasing him or that he was doing anything in deference to Saul, he comes and says, you guys, he says, you guys um, are with my enemy against me. With David, you're conspiring against me. What are you talking about? And he tells his soldiers to go kill them all, and none of them will do it. But Doeg will. And whether he had also a group of men with him is also possible. And him and his guys, or him, killed 80 priests and people with them. One priest escaped, you know, a child, one of the younger escaped to tell David about the story. And David, so this is earlier in his journey, so David writes this psalm. Why do you boast, O mighty man? Uh, 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 the goodness of God it continues forever, no matter what. Mighty man, and then he says, oh, you great warrior. That's sarcasm. <laughs> he doesn't consider this guy a great warrior. He goes, look at you. Look at who you are. Don't you realize God's justice will be fulfilled? Not the only one. And some of you worry about whether God's justice will be fulfilled. Some of us worry. Some of us worry. We ought not to. Still painful, isn't it? Even if you know God's going to deal with sin. It amazes us, though, how brazen people can be in their rejection of God's authority. Guys like Doeg. But there is a day of reckoning that will come to all, and David understands that somehow. No one gets away with anything, even if you and I don't see the end of the situation here. Just as we don't see the completion of our faith here, we know we're saved, we know we're under God's dominion, complete fulfillment, which is God's righteous judgment and victory as well as our redemption. They go together. They're not going to be one begs the need for the other. For me to be redeemed, God has to righteously judge sin, and he's judged my sin in Jesus Christ. But all sin has to be judged. But it sure looks like evil's triumphing, doesn't it? And to David also. I mean, what a hard thing. But what did David know even though he was pained greatly by this evil? And you have to imagine him being pained, feeling like, if I'd have not gone to Nob, these guys would be alive today. And he had to carry that and deal with that. And yet, he didn't know that was going to happen. He knew God's promise to him and to all of Israel, did he not? Without an eternal view, we will live in constant anger or fear or both. Boy, those two things go together so much. Anger and fear are like really close sisters, Siamese twins, (laughs) really. But Romans 12, 21 gives us a great insight. And I think David learned to do this in his Old Testament way. We'll talk about the New Testament view, but do not be overcome of evil in Romans 12, 21, but overcome evil with good. Think with me. This is not passive acceptance. Oh, well. It's not passive acceptance. It's active, victorious faith. Be not overcome of evil, but in your life, as God empowers you, me, overcome evil with what? Good. Apparently, God will give us the power to do that. This is not passive 
acceptance. It's active, victorious faith. And then in verse 8 and 9, David says, comparing to and looking at this guy, this evil man who Saul used in such a horrific way. But I'm a green olive tree. What does that mean? That means God's just beginning his work in me and through me. I'm going to grow. I'm going to become fruitful through this. And all those who trust you, Lord, with me will all be together rejoicing at your throne. Well, Rick, it doesn't really say those words. No, I'm just looking ahead to what it would mean for David to know that he's planted in the Lord, that he's green, meaning he's in that growing process. You know, sometimes we're growing most in the winter. Well, it shouldn't be sunny out for me to do this, but <laughs> we're growing most when it seems the darkest and the hardest. This is a time of growth for David, as difficult as it was. So we move on. Psalm 53. To the chief musician set to Mahaloth, a contemplation of David. You know that tune. The fool has said in his heart, there is no God. They are corrupt and have done abominable iniquity. There is none who does good. God looked down from heaven upon the children of men to see if there are any who understand, who seek God. Every one of them has turned aside. They have become together corrupt. There is none who does good. No, not. Knowledge who eat at my people as they eat bread and they do not call upon God. There they are in great fear where no fear was, for God has scattered the bones of him who encamps against you. You have put them to shame because God has despised them. Oh, that the salvation of Israel would come out of Zion when God brings back the captivity of his people. Let Jacob rejoice and Israel be glad. These called, again, uh, several names, but one of them is the imprecatory Psalms. Where, God, where David pleads with God for righteous judgment on wickedness. Um, this is, the old failure is revealed clearly, and then direct rebellion against God is talked about in such a strong way, it may offend you, but it's the truth. And he says, the fool has said in his heart, there is no God. Would people in Israel surrounding David in that kingdom say these things out loud? There is no God. No, not likely. The people all did not speak that way. Read it again. The fool has said where? In his heart, there is no God. And actions speak louder than words quite profoundly. And Romans 3 quotes this. But first, in Psalm 50, we read a few weeks ago uh, about take my word in your mouth as you live as though I didn't exist. Do you remember that? That was Psalm 50. To, the, to those who were using the sacrificial system, going to the temple, being all involved in religion, but their hearts were far from God, they were called out in Psalm 50 for this. And right here now again, and, uh, you know, we look at them living like God doesn't exist, but in verses 2 and 3, not so fast to you and me. Because Romans 3 quotes this and declares us all to be condemned under sin's judgment. Am I, do you understand that? The, the, the Old Testament declares, the Bible declares, and even Jesus declared our condemnation in sin, our judgment 
And Paul declared, you are all dead in trespass. You were dead in trespasses and sins. That's everybody. That's everybody. All concluded under our judgment that all could be saved by God's grace and mercy. And so here, this is quoted often, and we've talked about it a lot. But look at the end of David's cry in verse 6. Oh, that the salvation of Israel would come out of Zion. Zion being the spiritual sense of the presence of God in Jerusalem and that specific mountain hill where the temple would sit. Oh, that salvation would come out of Zion when God brings back the captivity of his people. Let Jacob rejoice and Israel be glad. Well, wait a minute. This is written three to 400 years before Babylon took Judah in their first captivity. Well, yeah, there was captivity before that. If you read the book of Judges, there was tons of captivity. Uh, As David writes, they're not under direct dominion of all these nations, and he is looking forward as well. But God's people before and after the Babylonian captivity have often been held captive by idols. And then sometimes right now that you and I are captives to sin, but is there anyone that say they've never been captive to sin here? The Bible declares that you have been. Oppressed, needing deliverance, and God does provide it. And it's interesting that Job was a contemporary of Abraham, Some think he may have lived even before Abraham. The book of Job may have been the first writing. But it says in chapter 42.10 of Job, the Lord turned the captivity of Job when he prayed for his friends, and also the Lord gave Job twice as much as he had before. As the Lord delivers uh, Job from his captivity, (laughs) was Satan doing a number on Job? It's not talking about captivity of his being in sin It's uh, necessarily. It's talking about his troubles, but it's using the exact same word as David uses. It's not a different word. And it's interesting that when he prayed for his friend, he himself was released. Well, that's going to lead us in a direction. David, of course, is a prophet. David does lead us through these words to the future deliverance of Israel from the future captivities that will happen. He's prophetic, and he's pointed in the moment to all of us, David. Psalm 54. This one is a, a contemplation of David when the Ziphites went and said to Saul, is not David hiding with us? Save me, O God, by your name, and vindicate me by your strength. Hear my prayer, O God, give ear to the words of my mouth, for strangers have risen up against me. And oppressors have sought after my life. They have not set God before them. Behold, God is my helper. The Lord is with those who uphold my life. He will repay my enemies for their evil. Cut them off in your truth. I will freely sacrifice to you. I will praise your name, O Lord, for it is good. For he has delivered me out of all trouble. And my eye has seen its desire upon my enemies. You know, we really do romanticize about the times of the past. We romanticize about the 1800s and Little House on the Prairie. We romanticize about, you know, ancient times and Bible characters. David, I mean, growing up, 
He's the runt, and he's out in the field when they're all in for the party with Samuel. David's brothers put him down, and then he rises up with glory before the nation and, and before God and before Saul, and then he's chased for over 10 years. When he's not being chased, he's got people rising up and, and own weaknesses and problems that create more problems. Does that sound like an easy life to you? Well, what was it like to be David with his heart just spending all day worshiping God? I don't know how many days he had that were just all day long. <laughs> he had a lot of battles, folks. He had a lot of pain. Some of it was absolutely self-inflicted, and some of it wasn't. Gee, that sounds kind of familiar to me. I have pain that was not self-inflicted, and I have pain that is self-inflicted. How about you? So, Lord, help us seek his face. And David went to the Ziph. He was out, and, and he was nice to the Ziphites. Other people he even saved, the Kelites, and they turned against him too. But David, uh, the Ziphites said, is not David hiding with us to Saul? They actually betrayed him twice, 1 Samuel 23 and 26, going to Saul, seeking to get a, 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 a benefit from Saul by turning David in. Have you ever feel like you're in enemy territory as you seek to walk with God? David knows how that feels. But he did good uh, to the Ziphites, and he did good in this time, even as they turn on him. Life is not fair. You found that out, haven't you? But as we talked, somebody, maybe it was a Monday night that was robbed and said, I thank God that I was the one and it's one of my favorites too, but I'm not going to go through the whole story, but I thank God that I was the one being robbed and not the robber. I wonder how strongly we could agree with that in our hearts over things that have happened in our lives. Be glad. If you've been robbed, if you've been hurt, can you be glad that you're not the one that was causing the hurt? Can you see God in your life? Well, we'll get to that. We'll get some help from that in a few more minutes. So David asked God to vindicate him. That's huge. David asked God to take, because his own lawyer has a what for a client? Yeah. It's never more true than for a believer, trusting in the finished work of the cross of Jesus Christ. God is my helper. He will repay now, because we're going to read Psalm 55, and there's so much more in Psalm 55 that I want to share with you, we'll just move on. But David prays for God's help, and you and I move even further towards the glory that David saw through a glass darkly. David saw prophetically, but not completely clearly. You and I move closer to that glory that David saw as we pray, not like David. As we pray, not like David. As we pray, like the son of David. Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they do. So that leads us to Psalm 55. Trusting in God with the treachery of friends, close friends. Before I read the 
and Bill alluded to this last week. He gave us some information on it. Absalom was David's son who rose up against him to turn the kingdom against him and actually had David on the run leaving the city of Jerusalem. And Absalom took counsel from anyone who would turn his way. Absalom was evil in his sin. David failed in his parenting, yes, but Absalom had a bent to seek glory, and he would be willing to destroy the kingdom for his own glory's sake. Are you with me? And he would destroy his father if he could. He was going to seek to kill his father. He's one of the sons that he did end up dying in the battle that ensued. And Absalom, David, knew this was God's discipline on David, yet you're going to see he's still able to cry out to God and expect God to help him even though he's being disciplined. That's a very important, wonderful thing. There's a man named Ahithophel. Bill mentioned him in 2 Samuel 11 when David sins with Bathsheba and pulls her in and then kills her husband Uriah. Bathsheba in 2 Samuel 23 is the daughter of a guy named Eliam, and Eliam is the son of Ahithophel. So Bathsheba is Ahithophel's granddaughter. Are you with me? Bathsheba is the granddaughter of one of David's most trusted, respected, godly counselors. But bitterness overcame him, and he became Absalom's counselor to destroy David and sought that by giving him counsel that would have worked against David. But another guy who loved David, David sent back to also give counsel, and Absalom listened to his counsel instead of Ahithophel's. Ahithophel's was counsel that would have been hard for David to escape from being killed. The guy that David sent, Archai the Hushite, I'm pretty sure. I, of course, I read it, but now in my mind. <laughs> but uh, he comes back and says, no, that's not a good idea. Don't go after him right away. Wait and gather all the people. He's buying time for David. Gather all the people so that you can get the whole country to go against him, and then you'll win because David's such a good fighter. And he goes, that's a better idea. It was the Lord protecting David. But Ahithophel was seeking David's destruction. He's so bitter. In 2 Samuel 17, 23, this is what he does after he finds out that his counsel is not received because he is really intelligent and he knows it's not going to work and he knows it's curtains for him or something or he's just so bitter and so bummed that he doesn't get his way. I think he's aware of what's going to happen. But in 2 Samuel 17, 23, it says, Now when Ahithophel saw that his advice was not followed, he saddled a donkey and arose and went home to his house, to his city, and he put his household in order and hanged himself, and he died. So, chapter 55 of Psalms. Give ear to my prayer, O God, and do not hide yourself from my supplication. Attend to me and hear. I am restless in my complaint and moan noisily because of the voice of the enemy, because of the oppression of the wicked, for they bring down trouble upon me, and in wrath they hate me. 
My heart is severely pained within me, and the terrors of death have fallen upon me. Fearfulness and trembling have come upon me, and horror has overwhelmed me. So I said, oh, that I had wings like a dove. I would fly away and be at rest. Indeed, I would wander far off and remain in the wilderness. I would hasten my escape from the windy storm and tempest. You felt that, haven't you? Oh, man. Buy me a ticket for an airplane. <laughs> Let me take wings and fly away from all this trouble. Destroy, O Lord, in verse 9, and divide their tongues, for I've seen violence and strife in the city. Day and night they go around on its walls. Iniquity and trouble are also in the midst of it. Destruction is in its midst. Oppression and deceit do not depart from its streets. Chaos is going on. Trouble is going on in the city. For it was not an enemy who reproaches me. Then I could bear it. Nor is it one who hates me who has exalted himself against me. Then I could hide from him. But it was you, a man my equal, my companion, and my acquaintance. We of God in the throng. Let death seize them. Let them go down alive into hell, for wickedness is in their dwelling and among them. As for me, I will call upon God, and the Lord shall save me evening and morning, and at noon I will pray and cry aloud, and he shall hear my voice. He has redeemed my soul in peace from the battle that was against me, for there were many against me. God will hear and afflict them, even he who abides from of old, because they do not change. Therefore do they do not fear God. Because they don't have any changes in their life. They feel like they're in control of their own destiny. They don't fear God. He has put forth his hand against those who were at peace with him. He has broken his covenant. The words of his mouth were smoother than butter. But war was in his heart. His words were softer than oil. Yet they were drawn swords. Cast your burden on the Lord, and he shall sustain you. He shall never permit the righteous to be moved. How interesting that that word comes there, huh? But you, O God, shall bring them down to the pit of destruction. Bloodthirsty and deceitful men shall not live out half their days, but I will trust in you. So you saw the section that it was you, my trusted friend, my associate, and we link this to who in the New Testament? Did Ahithophel, one of the most godly, trusted leaders, counselors in Israel, did he have a right, along with others who were godly, to be angered and scandalized by David's evil actions? In the natural, of course they did. The, the guy committed adultery and murder of one of his great soldiers who loved him. Did they have a right in the natural? The answer is yes. You know, a sign is that you're less and less become angry over other people's sin, even against you, and you become more grieved than angered. There's a difference between being grieved and being just angered. Anger would come there out of hurt and self-defense and self-protection and then, of course, also revenge. Grieving is a sadness for the wrong that's been done for everyone involved. A sadness for the wrong that's been done. 
for everyone involved. Are we more angry or are we more grieved when we see sin? If you're spiritually mature, you're grieved. You're able to, I mean, you have to fight it off because nobody's perfect. But you fight off anger and you allow grief to do a healing work in your heart. So what did Ahithophel know? We know that he knew the promise that the Messiah would come through David and that David would be, the Messiah would be called the son of David. That was 100% that was known that David was given that promise. And his number one counselor, a guy that was close to him, and Nathan, the prophet, would know all of that for sure. Did he know that God pronounced forgiveness and discipline for David? It would seem to me, and I've pondered it a lot, I don't know for sure what details he would know for sure, but it seems impossible that he would not know Nathan's story to David, David's repentance and the baby dying, and God declaring David forgiven. God declared David forgiven. But God's mercy to David was not acceptable to Ahithophel. God's mercy to David was not acceptable to Ahithophel. Did he love his granddaughter Bathsheba so much that he couldn't help himself? And maybe love Uriah so much, her husband? Yeah, you know what? Hardly to seek to destroy her husband now and the father of her child and the king of Israel in opposition to God's will, to God's word, and to let civil war happen is nothing about love. It's revenge. It's hatred. Don't confuse those. You see the guy on the news. You know what I mean? There's this happens. Man, I love my girl. She says, well, you're starting to get weird. I'm going to get away from you. And he, I, I loved her so much I couldn't live without her, so I killed her. <laughs> you understand that's not love? <laughs> Does everybody in this room understand that's not love? Love has nothing to do with it. Maybe self-love in the most perverted sense. Self-righteous anger took hold on this man. His end is a primer. It's a picture of the results of carrying bitterness. People sin to other people. It still affects you, but uh, to carry the weight of someone else's sin, someone else's failure, and into a captivity of the soul. It absolutely captivates your soul. Hebrews chapter 12, verse 14 and 15 tells us, 
pursue peace with all people. Stop there. That's the horizontal. Pursue peace with all people. Are you with me? That's you and me. Pursue peace with all people. And holiness. The vertical. Without, we, without which no one shall see God. But when you're bitter, isn't it? It's hard to see when you're filled with anger, bitterness, and resentment. It's hard to see. Without which no one will see the Lord. Looking carefully, lest anyone fall short of the grace of God, lest any root of bitterness springing up causes trouble, and by this many become defiled. People do say, and you've heard this, but we'll say it again here. It makes sense to do it here. My sin isn't bothering anybody but just me. I'm not affecting anybody by my sin. Folks, that is N-E-V-E-R-T-R-U-E. It is never, ever, 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 ever true that our sin doesn't affect anybody else. Whether you see it or not, whether you experience it in the moment you're in or not, it's happening. God has forgiven David's sin. That cannot be humanly reconciled. The law did not allow for that, so God superseded the law with David. It's like this. Down at Northern Pines and Route 9 is a traffic light. When that light says red, you got to stop, right? You don't go. The law says stop at that light. But when there's a cop there because there was an accident up the way and the light's red and he goes like this, come on through. And he, would you please look at me and drive? You know, stop rubbernecking. <laughs> I just felt like I was a cop for a minute. It was like this weird thing. When he waves you on, when he waves you on, he's the law. The red light is superseded, but the law hasn't been broken. There's a a higher law happening. That's our Lord. The laws of nature are the way things are normally, but supernatural things are God intervening because they're not laws that are unbreakable. They're, they're the way things are that we see, but God is above all his creation. That's not so hard to understand. So you can't humanly reconcile David's forgiveness. David did not deserve forgiveness. And guess what? And you already know the answer. No one earns forgiveness from God. On any level, there's no such thing. So the big picture of God's mercy to David was for Ahithophel and everyone else in Israel's benefit and the benefit of you and I sitting here today because it's all part of the promise of God, of the Messiah, and the forgiveness that would come through Jesus Christ for sinners who had no hope and were lost alienated from God by wicked works in their minds, dead in trespasses and sins. That is the big picture 
that he wouldn't understand all of it, but it was for his benefit. And Ahithophel could have been a part of the redemption process for David, for Israel, for all mankind, but he lost all godly concern about the God of Israel. He didn't care what happened to the nation. He didn't care if he destroyed, helped destroy the nation in a civil war. He was fine with it if he could get back at David. Now, you might say, and he might say, and we might say when we're in that, those kind of shoes, what, I'm not destroying anything. This really needs to happen. It would be better. And here we are playing chess like we're God and, and taking upon ourselves this role. He didn't care about the good of his granddaughter. Killing David would not help her, especially since God forgave him. He embraced an evil man, Absalom, who sought dominion and destruction over Israel. He brought even a greater shame to his family through his failed revenge. I mean, in the end, David is forgiven. We don't celebrate his sin, but we celebrate his salvation. Do we celebrate Ahithophel? No. He could have been a Peter, a guy who turns. could have been a Peter, but he ended up a Judas. In fact, he is the Old Testament picture of Judas. He is the Old Testament quintessential Judas. That's where he went. That's where his bitterness went. When he started, he thought he was doing a righteous thing and a good thing and a necessary thing. You can just think about that. Make no mistake about it, our bitterness will turn us at the very least away from God's blessing, and far worse, it can destroy our family, our relationships. Proverbs 8.36 says, But he who sins against me wrongs his own soul, and all those who hate me love death. Well, wait a minute. I'm bitter, but I don't hate God. Well, you're sinning against God when you hold on to your bitterness. I'm sinning against God when I hold on to my bitterness. And we are, because what we're saying, and listen, it's a journey because you have to go through what God has to take you through to see it, and I understand that, but, you know, when you're preaching, you preach what the truth says and let God work by the Spirit in people's hearts to get them there because I can't make anybody be any different. And I'm not condemning you if you're personally struggling, but I am pointing you in the direction of God's truth because I would imagine in this room, there's plenty of history that needs healing. I would imagine anywhere. So I'm bitter, but I don't think God. Well, we're sinning against God when we hold bitterness. And here's what we're saying, that his provision by his death on the cross is insufficient for those around us. But if it's insufficient for those around us, it's also insufficient for us. And so we can't be the one who determines when God's mercy starts and when God's mercy stops. That is not in your court or my court, is it? We have to let God be the one. And, and what happens is you lose the ability to enjoy God and have confidence in him because you're in a rebellion to his word about this 
it hinders you from experiencing his power in your life, and he's diminished for you. And you don't trust him for a whole lot of other things that aren't really the bitterness. They are the fruit of your not believing God, and and it's how it hurts you, and and we've all been there. You know, understanding this is, I think, the primary reality that we need. Isaiah 53, we finished last Wednesday night, and it says there, and he was numbered with the transgressors. And you know, I've thought about it, and I've prayed about it and stuff, but it wasn't until we were sitting there that what I kind of already know mentally just became so real that it was overwhelming to me, and people were sharing beautiful things, so I don't even remember. Uh, Somebody said something that was so clear that's why group Bible studies. I went, oh my goodness, you know, Jesus, 700 years before Jesus came, he's hung, and I may have said this at the beginning, did I? 700 years, the transgressors. And you first thought is what? The two criminals on the crosses. And we remember the testimony of one of them who spoke for the other two, and it was not declined. You and I are up here because we deserve it. We're getting the righteous judgment for what we did. So out of the mouth of a man hanging on a cross, he says, yep, I deserve to be here. Now, that's a transgressor, okay? Who else deserved to be there? He was numbered with the transgressors. I'm looking at him. I'm looking at him. I'll use my glasses to look at my face. Transgressors but we're the one that said, Lord, remember me when you come into your kingdom. That's who we are. He was numbered with us. We deserved what David deserved, what everyone deserved. If you cannot see that, God has to open your eyes to see that. When a person thinks that they're better than others. Your actions outwardly to our view, to my view, are probably better than a lot of people. I mean, we doesn't God's justice need to be fulfilled? Yes. Everyone speaks of the great evil of Hitler, right? But if the grave is the end, Hitler got away with the slaughter of millions and millions of people. If there's no God, there's no absolute right, there's no absolute wrong anyway. If our sense of morality is based on anthropology, who's to say what's right and wrong? We've seen what there is no God produces in our culture, haven't we? There is no God, so anything goes, and voila. This is not rocket science. There is no God. (laughs) Off we go on the roller coaster. That's all that we're seeing. That's all it is. There is no God. Don't let bitterness let you be blind to see who God really is. Because what God is using that to show you your own need. And I think of my wife has shared with many and maybe in front of all of us about the fact that if in our lives, I won't use her story specifically, but um, which she's very free to share, but... In our lives, we think if this had not happened to me, that person didn't do that to me, 
I would be living such a good life. I would be so free to serve the Lord with all my heart. I would be so whatever. How do you know? How do you know? How do I know that if we had had none of those problems happen from people doing wrong, that we might have become so self-absorbed in our glory and our achievement and our self-righteous abilities that we would have never, as Gail said, the Lord asked her, if these things hadn't happened, would you have ever needed me? Now you can, and I can sit here all day and talk about how we see it, but the fact is, you and I don't know. We do not know what would have happened if we'd have had this great life without any of that pain. We do not know. And it's very possible because it happens to people, that we would have been the one that said, I don't need God. And I think of Joseph once again. His brothers were evil and wrong in what they did. You meant it for evil, but God meant it for good. Doesn't mean God made everything happen. It means that he could take the evil that people have done, and because I trust in him and follow him, And I don't let bitterness control me, but give it to him. I cast my burden on the Lord for him to sustain me. And I'll be strengthened and I won't be moved. It's a very difficult thing to receive when you're in the midst of pain. When it brings back memories of things. But I would suggest to you that there's probably things in many of our lives that cripple us, that haunt us, that captivate us, keep us captive from freedom because of past hurts that we haven't reconciled. And if that's you, you're not alone. You're not worse than other people because it's hard for you a day to consider it needs to go. Whatever it takes, it needs to go. Get out of the prison. He shall not. He shall put that guy in prison who wouldn't forgive his brother the fifty bucks when he owed me millions. He will not get out till he's paid the last penny. How does that happen? There's no way. He would simply. If it's a parable, it's not a real story. It's a picture, which tells us we need to forgive. Don't try to figure out the parable all the way. You can't. It just tells you you need to forgive. It's for your benefit. It's for God's glory. It's for those you love as well as those you don't love. Let's stand. You might need help. You might need prayer partners to stand with you and help you stay on track and declare forgiveness and then stand on it. Um, I'm going to ask uh, Bill.